um, we have a hymn that goes to the tune of it as well with my soul that's pasted in the back of our black hymn book. And uh, it's, it's also very good. It begins with, I've been to the altar and witnessed the lamb, they're wholly burnt for me. You know, that, it's just so moving, isn't it? Um, but let's open in prayer and we'll ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we uh, rejoice with this tremendous Lamb of God who took away my sin. He bore my sin for me, for us. And we just can't get over that very astounding fact of the truth of God's Word. And we rejoice in it and we say with Mr. Spafford, it is well, oh, it is so well with our souls. It can't get any better than that. And we just want to say we love you and we thank you. Father, we have a need this morning and it's a need that could be stated this way. Give us this day our daily bread. We'd like to ask you to show us what that means this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be back with you. It's been a couple of months or longer, and um, the reason why uh, there was kind of a break in our, our regular meetings was uh, for dis- discipleship was because um, I had too many trips in the middle. So I'm sorry about that, but I love coming back and meeting with the brothers yesterday. Um, but while I've been away, um, there's been a few trips. One that I mentioned to you, I think, before was in Jordan and several meetings there in Jordan, several assemblies. And then uh, I was uh, for a series of meetings in Canada. These are all overseas trips for about a week or longer. And uh, I believe when I was here last, I asked you to pray about the trip to Japan. And Japan was a two-week trip that got us back home the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, Japan, not, not many assembly believers understand or know about Japan, but there's 125 assemblies in Japan, and some of them are, th- are large, 120 people. Some are small, 10 people, and I was at both while I was there, and uh, the uh, brother that traveled with me, he is uh, from Japan, studying in the United States, living in my parents' home while he's here, so he's from Osaka, and we traveled together back together. So it was nice to be with him and have some time to, to you know, work together. Um, one of the conferences was in his home assembly, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Philippians was the subject matter, and, and the saints were very hungry for the word of God. We traveled to several assemblies in the middle of the week. The next weekend, we went to the probably the feature conference, which was... Uh, it was called Wise Up. Now, I, I thought it was kind of corny and sort of cheesy, but I didn't say that because they, they came up with that title about four years ago, and they do this Wise Up conference uh, every, four ye- or every year, and it rotates from the East Coast, which is Tokyo, to the western part of Japan, which is Osaka, because the island kind of is an L-shape, the main island, Honshu. And um, and so what happened was was that it was this year it was in Tokyo and this year they decided to change everything, and they opened it up to all the assemblies in Japan. So 41 assemblies were represented. There were 300 people, and the average age was below the age of 30. 
So it was really obvious. That's, to me, like dinner. That's perfect. And so we, we were together, and, and it, the day on that day began at like 5.45 in the morning, and it ended around 10 o'clock at night. I thought I was going to die. And uh, in, in a foreign culture, it's not just the ministry. They give you 80 minutes for a message. And like today, we have 80 minutes for, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it's translated and, you know, you have to develop this chemistry with your translator and um, you have to be able to kind of remember what you said just in case it was too complex for translation because, you know, everything in other cultures, it's reversed. We, we go, what, subject, noun, verb. Well, they usually do verb or verb, subject, something else. And and that's the way it is in Japanese. So you have to kind of remember. And I'll never forget, uh, we're at the end of the day, and we're getting, both of us were getting mentally exhausted. And so I said what I thought was a very short sentence, but Kosei, my coworker, he was so tired. And I said it, and he gave me the look like, I have no idea how to translate that. And so he started a few words, and then he stopped, and he said, can you repeat that? And I said, I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> And so I said, let me restate that. He goes, great idea. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun, a lot of fun. But um, the conference, the Lord blessed so very much. The, the, they're very active with the gospel. And they're one place in the world in which the gospel meeting is very valuable. Because the Japanese people, they don't have anything to do on Sunday. So all the Christians invite all their friends and family to come to the gospel meeting at 2 o'clock in every assembly in Japan. And it's not just a gospel meeting. The elders get with you, the speaker, and they say, we want you to preach the gospel. And you go, no problem. I, I don't get to preach the gospel very often, so I'm really happy when I can. And so I preach the gospel through the interpreter. And, and when I say amen, the systematically Japanese saints will move over and sit down and talk with every single visitor. And so right after the meeting, for the next hour, you have the, the post-meeting post meeting. And you've got clumps of people, 10, 15 of them, with saints talking to the unsaved about the gospel message for the next hour. It is one of the most impressive evangelistic efforts I've ever seen. I loved it. I said, man, we should do I don't know if that would work here, but that sounded like they're organized, let me tell you. So I just, uh, just really appreciated that. The elders are very involved in the assemblies, and they, uh, they ask one question, how can we pass the baton? And so I said, well, the Lord's doing this work in Claremont, California, and it looks like this, and maybe that's something we can use. So hopefully, Ricky, you'll go there and help me teach it one day. And I hope you like sushi. Okay. Now, when we were here in the last few times together, I tried to do somewhat of a continued series, and the series is on prayer. And the reason why is very simple, just to remind you, is that whenever the Lord Jesus was seemingly misplaced in the New Testament, do you know what he was doing? He was praying. It's very clear in Mark. Uh, they came to him and they said, no, Lord, where are you? Everybody's looking for you. And, and, and they, they found him praying. In fact, they were so impressed with the prayer life of the Lord Jesus and the fact that John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray, they asked the Lord, they said, could you teach us to pray? On record, that is the only thing they actually ask to be taught. You can make a case for the parables, but this was a real direct frontal request. 
And so the Lord Jesus takes time recorded for you, perhaps a different setting in Luke chapter 11, but also in the Sermon on the Mount, which was a very famous piece of literature. And in that Sermon on the Mount, he comes to a point where he says, now I'm going to, to tell you, when you pray, you pray in this manner. And we've been going through it line by line. And as we've gone through it, it'll, re it'll say the following, our Father who art in heaven. And we talked about that, what it means to be able to call him Father, what what it means to reference heaven, the throne of God, our Father, his, his intimacy, his identification, his, uh, his um, uh, um, uh, ability to know your needs, his intuition, what it means to have him as your Father. And he wants you to call him that. He wants you to approach him that way. And yet, when we talk about our Father who art in heaven, we're talking about a place where the judicial seat and administrative power of all the universe is exercised, and yet we, like little toddlers, walk into the throne of heaven, and all of the workings of heaven seem to be suspended while we toddle up to the throne and whisper into the Father's ear. What a privilege is that? And then we talked about this idea, hallowed be your name, that it's not just walking in there with a sense of, of ignorance about who he is and what he is, but we have a real sense of reverence. And I emphasize to you that one of the things we've lost in our prayer life is a fear of the Lord. I was reading about this in Acts this morning. They had such a fantastic fear of God. And they, 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 they saw Ananias and Sapphira uh, lose their lives because they lied to the Holy Spirit and great fear came over the church. Oh, would that we would have the fear of God upon us, that we would understand who He is, what He is, and why He is, and that would affect us deeply, that we would never think of disrespecting our Father. Sometimes in our culture today, we have dumbed down the authority structure so much, which was given by God, I might add, that we treat our earthly Father as if, as if that person is, is, is equivalent to a peer that you might have on the college campus. Your father is your father. And what the enemy likes to do is so remove those particular identifying strata of, our, of God's makeup, of, of his economy, so that we would disrespect him. That's the play of the enemy. No, listen, saints, if there's anybody that needs to fear God today, Anybody that should fear God today, it's his people. And I'm not sure that's happening. So I pray that we would have that fear of the Lord. Hallowed be your name. Then we looked at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And by the way, now I'm reading in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, if you have your Bibles there. I'm sorry, I meant to mention that earlier. We're in verse 10 where it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we looked at that, we... We looked at this idea from the context of the kingdom of God and how it affects uh, how um, the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth would perhaps have been foremost in their thinking. And when we talked about this idea of the will of God, and, and it really sometimes conflicted. Well, if God's will is one thing and I pray and it doesn't happen, how does that work? Because I prayed and God didn't do it. We act like God like dropped the ball, forgetful. His Alzheimer's kicked in or something. And that's farthest from the truth. That's a distortion of who God is. And what I tried to show you last time was this really, really important verse in 1 John 5, 
which says this, and when we pray according to his will, he does it. And we ended with this illustration that Sam Salazar reminded me last time about my little girl, Gracie, who you've met, the most photographed girl on the, in the internet. And, and I remember taking her to the store and giving her the opportunity to choose anything she wanted, which was about 4,000 pieces of candy. And she turns to me and she says, well, Daddy, I want you to choose for me. So, darling, this is your treat. I want you to get what you want. I know. I just, I just like it when you choose. Now, at first I thought, well, you like it when I choose because, you know, I choose bigger and better than you, right? That's not what she meant. She just liked that I would make a decision for her because she valued me over the choice. Now, that's pretty powerful because I think that's how we see the will of God done on this earth. And we entrust the decision of, the, of what happens to his will, to his thinking and his activity, his plan, and we trust him that it will actually not just be better for you, that's sort of selfish, but that it would be delightful because our father made the decision. That, that He means that much to us. And that's what prayer does. Prayer begins to weld two hearts, one, and one eternal and one finite together. That's what prayer is all about. And this is why God calls us to pray. This is why he urges us to pray. This is why he commands us to pray. Because there is so much that happens behind the scenes between the heart of fa the Father in heaven and the heart of his child upon the earth. And he longs for that. This is why I think the Lord Jesus is teaching in this fashion. Now we come down to the middle of this prayer, this model prayer, and we get to this verse that says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. All right? Now, this message will be, be titled Daily Dependence. It's not flashy, but write it down. It's on the text. Okay? There will be four points. And the four points are the following. Number one, your personal dependency. Personal dependence. Number two, his personal reliability. He's personally reliable. Number three, we're going to simply call it our daily needs. Our daily, our regularity of daily needs. And number four, I'm going to talk about a few corollaries, all right? A few parallel passages that add depth to this particular phrase of his instruction, okay? So four points, and we will get it done in the remaining 80 minutes. Okay. Now, Jonas, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I like him. Okay. All right, let's go back to the text. All right, so my first point was about personal reliability. Just think about the phrase. I want, this is Jesus, if I were to portray Jesus' teaching and his disciples came, I would say, now listen, when you pray, I want you to say, pray to say this, and it's halfway through his prayer. He says, give us this day our daily bread. There is an inherent request in there. And in that her, uh, her inherent request of personal dependency, sorry, my notes are a little off there, a personal dependency, what he's saying is, I want you to ask the person who has the title father that you used earlier in the prayer, I want you to ask him for the basic, basic level of your needs every day. 
I want you to put yourself in a dependent position on your father. Now, this is harder than you think. It's very hard. The reason why it's hard is because it demands that you have to basically confess, admit that you can't do it. Now, we have always been people, appropriately so, trained to have a sense of independence, right? I mean, you need to get up, you need to brush your teeth. You do brush your teeth, don't you? Okay, good. You need to get dressed, take your shower, whatever you do, but you need to, like, take responsibility for yourself, and you need to do these things. And that's appropriate because, as you may know, your body is a temple of God, and you're to take care of that temple as if God was living in you because he actually is, and, and you, you, you have this sort of stewardship that is uh, of a high caliber and quality because of residence of God within your soul. We talked about that in Galatians 2.20 in the first meeting. Now, but what happens is, is that we begin to let that sort of personal responsibility of our caretakership bleed over to thinking that we can therefore take care of everything. And the answer to that sort of um, error is God wants you to be personally dependent. And so the line is phrased this way, give us, we can't get it anywhere else. Our daily, the simplicity of a loaf, of a piece of morsel of food, we can't do that by ourselves. We need you to give us the most basic needs of life. And we need it not just every day, but today. See that? It's a confession of dependency. Now, this is not the first time the Word of God does this. There are several incidents where this comes out. Do you remember the story of the, the uh, guy that was sick by the pool of Bethesda? Did I ever tell you this story? It's so cool. All right, so when you go to Israel with me in 2020, Rachel, 2020, it's scheduled March 1 through the 12th. I specifically scheduled it off for the Claremont Bible Chapel, okay? Just saying. But that's true. All that's true, but it's really locked in. But when you go there, you, we will go through a, a gate called Stephen's Gate. Why do you think it's called Stephen's Gate? Don't think too hard. Because he was like traditionally stoned there. That's why. All right? It's also called Lion's Gate because they got these lions sticking out on the sides of the gate. You go in there and you come in from the east and you're going to walk due west. You walk about 100 meters, maybe 150 meters, and you'll see, you'll see the Temple Mount, the old wall to the Temple Mount on the left side. Now, the street is, is, is only about a car width and a half wide, and it's all stone. And as you're walking west, you see that. Now, right, that very gate by the, on the Temple Mount, that one on the left, that one's called the Sheep Gate. And the Sheep Gate was where they collected the animals for those travelers from uh, northern Galilee and all over the Roman Empire who came to the festivals like Passover, they didn't want to carry the lambs the whole way and have them potentially damaged on the route. They would buy certified nice lambs so that, that were qualified for temple sacrifice services. They would buy them at the sheep gate. Now, what you would do is you would go over, you would pick up your lamb, look over, and then you'd walk across the street, and you'd go into the area called the Pools of Bethesda. Now, when you're walking with me down this road, you'll see the sheep gate on the left, and then at that moment, we'll turn right, and we'll go into this place, this courtyard, and right there, immediately inside, is a place called the St. Anne's Church. 
It is perhaps the only church I love to visit in Israel. Do you know why? (laughs) It's beautiful. It's domes, and it's very simple. I think the Catholic folks own it, because every time I go there, the same guy for the last 20 years is standing out front, and he's in this robe, you know, and it looks like something John the Baptist would wear. And we go in there. I take my group in there, not for mass, because that would be wrong, but we go in there to sing. We go right in, and we sit down on these wooden benches. I have to tell you this little part of the story, because it's so funny. I've been there many times, and so I go in and I say to the gentleman, um, sir, is it all right if we come in and sing? He goes like this. Oh, yes, of course, of course. So I bring my, like, 40 people in. We sit down, and he goes like this. They will sing, and then you will sing. Very, you know, like, psychiatrist voice. Okay, fine. And so whoever sang their thing, and then it's our turn. So we are, you know... It's Brother Mateo. You've got to come. All right? So we sing. Are you ready? It is well with my soul. All right? <laughs> so we sing, and we sound fantastic. And so that little priest guy, he comes up to me. He's very calm. He goes, would you sing another one? <laughs> I said, sure, sure. So guess what we sing next? What would you pick? Man of Sorrows. Yes. Exactly. Hallelujah. What a say. Oh, we sound so good. All right? Man, it was fantastic. So he comes up a third time. He says, could you sing another one? I said, we must go to the site. But I will return and sing another one. I might have embellished the moment, but that's what we did. And so we go out, we hang a right, and we go to the pools of Bethesda. Now, at the pools of Bethesda, there is this fellow there that had this ailment, what was it, 38 years, I think. And if you remember the Lord Jesus, now think of the setting. You got people who had got these lambs, they're running around, they're, gonna, they're in a hurry, they maybe bump into the Lamb of God, go figure that, carrying a lamb, and they go over and they wash the little lamb. And in that story, it says, and it was filled with sick people. That's what I call a hospital. And there are people that have been there a long time, so they had bed sores, they had flies, they had all kinds of stuff. It smelled, you know, you ever been in a ward like that? It's not pretty. And so they're all there, and the Lord Jesus walks up to a guy who's been there for so long, he was almost on his fourth decade, almost completing his fourth decade of residency. And he says this, are you ready? Do you want to be made well? Okay, that's one of those questions that if I'm one of the disciples, I'm going to go, yeah, of course he wants to be made well. What do you think? He's at the hospital. Fortunately, I wasn't there, and the disciples kept their mouth shut. But why did he ask that? Why did he say, you want to be made well? And you know what the answer was? This is the answer. I can't do I can't get in the water. Will you help me get in the water? Will you help me get in? I can't do it. You see, it appears to me that the the God of the universe wants man and woman, child and, and teenager to get to a point in your life where you actually confess, I can't fix myself. Listen, there are many souls in this world 
They go through life and they think they can fix themselves and, and re, uh, uh, re, rewrite their lives and, and be able to, to uh, reincarnate themselves in some moral fashion so they would be acceptable before God. I'm sorry, but I have to tell you the truth. You can't fix yourself. You can't. You can never fix yourself enough. You can never get yourself to a point where God will say, hey, you've done a good job this year. Come on into heaven. It's not going to happen like that. God has not, a, he, he is so perfectly just. He has to deal with sin, and he has to deal with it the right way. And what you find was that the law was created to indict everyone to make them all guilty before God so that God could show mercy on everyone. So you can't come to God and say, I can fix myself. He's longing for the individual soul to get to the end of their rope and confess, oh God, I can't fix myself. That's the spirit of this phrase, give us this day our daily bread personal dependency and it happens at the moment of salvation when you realize you can't fix your sins and you receive Christ as your savior who paid for your sins and now fixes you because he paid the penalty of your crimes and it continues as a child of God and that's why you and I will go through trials that are so overwhelming there is no way there is no feasible logical rational way in which your trial can actually be solved you are forced to be dependent upon God and in this prayer Jesus Christ is saying recognize that your dependency is right on the front rung of your approach to God is that a attitude of your soul Personal dependency. What's the opposite of dependency? Independence. Several people that tried to do it, be independent from God in the Bible. It went bad for every single one of them. Who? Ricky, you asked me who? Thank you for asking. Um, do, you, do you remember Jonah? That went bad, right? Do you, do you remember David at Ziklag? That went bad. Do you remember Saul? That went really bad. Every person who exercised an independence of God, not asking, not seeking, not depending on God, every single one ended up in catastrophe, even the great Abraham, right? Jesus is saying in almost a thematic way, almost like the exclamation point to the theme of the human nature, human frame is you've got to understand that you depend upon God. Don't let yourself have an independent spirit. Deal with that. Confess that. Forsake that. Don't let yourself uh, be uh, convinced that I've got this. The moment you hear those words rattling around, rattling around in the caverns of your skull, and I mean that politely, of course, you should understand that that's a yellow flag to your spirit. That's not good. Give me more time and I can figure it out. Men have actually said that to me. I just need more time. I've worked this problem, and I know that the issue lies here. And I'm telling you, sometimes God takes those who are the smartest person in the room and gives them situations that cannot be solved because they're solving it in their own strength, their own logic, their only skills of, of learning and engineering and medicine. And I think sometimes God just wants you to depend upon him. Give us this day our daily bread.
All right, number two, point number two. Personal reliability. What God is saying here is that not only do I want you to depend upon me, I want you to know I'm good for it. I'm reliable. You see, God takes this idea of trustworthiness very, very, um, in, uh, very, very dear. It's, it's important to him. Now, he wants you to be trustworthy. He says, and commit these truths to faithful men. That word faithful in Timothy 2, 2 means trustworthy. And he says that because he's trustworthy. I, I can imagine walking around with the Lord Jesus, and, and as we were walking through the fields, uh, or walking towards the Sea of Galilee, getting on the boat, I can just see us have a conversation. Well, where's the Lord? I don't know. He said he'd meet us up. Okay. He's, he always keeps his word. We'll see him. And we're in the middle of the, oh, we're in the, middle of the sea, and the storm is raging, and it's like, well, where's the Lord? Oh, I don't know. I don't know where the Lord is. And then somebody goes, there he is, I think. I'm going to die. Right? The trustworthiness of God is a big deal to him. He wants you to know that he can be trusted and you should have the liberty and full confidence that you can rest totally in him. Remember, what was attacked about God in the Garden of Eden? It was simply this, that you can't trust God because he knows that you would know what he knows. Even so, he doesn't want that. That's why he gave you this really very restrictive constraining, choking restriction upon eating the fruit that's in the midst of the garden. So you see, to reverse that, God would have you rest in his reliability. This is what this verse means that you have on the wall. Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can know that I am reliable for your rest. Now, in this particular idea of his personal reliability, the reason why that becomes precious to God is because it means a lot when a child trusts a, fa a father. You see, there was a little time when Gracie was younger. She was four. And uh, one day, she came up to me, and she has this blanket, you know, and it's probably a blanket that, is, that we can't get rid of it. One of those blankets the little girls have, little kids have. And she's running around. She takes it everywhere. You know, bath time, play time, car time, chapel time, everywhere. And so one day she comes up and she goes like this. <sighs> Daddy, would you hold my blanket? I go, oh, sure, I will. And she starts to run out of the room and I say, I'll take care of it for you. And she turns around, whips around. She goes, I know. And she goes on her way. Not a second thought in the world. And you know, when she said to me, I know, she was saying, I trust you. Now, let me tell you something. I'll give my life for that blanket. Right? Because she put her full confidence in me, and I did not want to fail her. I wanted to be true to her. I wanted to portray a kind of man that she could trust and rely upon. Now, think about that. Translate that over to praying to your heavenly Father. Let me tell you something. God 
not, does not, will not fail you. Because it means too much to him to have your trust. You ever think about it that way? This happens when you pray. This is what prayer is about. All this, it's not just sort of, well, let's get through our 150 things tonight. You take 15, you take 15, you, and we just boom, 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 like we're putting coins in the slots machine of heaven or putting coins in the Coke machine of heaven, hoping we hit E5 to get the Coca-Cola we wanted. That's ridiculous. Who thinks about that stuff? But that's how we treat God in prayer. But really, this is way deeper than that. This is God saying, you trust, you, you, can, you have a dependency, and you can trust me, and I want you to trust me. I'll take care of your plan A for you. You can trust me. I won't lose it. I won't misplace it. I'll know exactly where it is when it's time. All right, so... Those are our first two points, personal re, uh, dependency, personal reliability. But I want you to look at regular or regularity. And this focuses on the word daily. Well, give us this day, not only today, but our daily bread. In other words, we come to you every day for the same need. Now, what, there's, a, there's a certain phenomenon that is called business as usual. Right, and uh, in the world of medicine, which is where I grew up at, we we call it protocols. Now, why do we have protocols? So, you come into my emergency department. Let's say your arm is maybe crooked. Can you you have a crooked arm? Okay. If your arm was crooked, now we have a protocol for you. Right. First of all, we ask you certain questions. For example, how old are you? Um, do you hurt? That's always a dumb question. It's crooked. Of course it hurts. Does it hurt? And then we say, do you want something for pain? And I'm supposed to do that within the first three minutes, stick an IV in you and give you something for pain, or the government says, oh, you're providing bad care. I actually didn't know they practice medicine, but still. And so I, I have this protocol, and we follow it. We check all the boxes, right? We have a, a thing to follow, business as usual. And why do we do that? So that we don't have to think. We just have to follow the recipe, right? And what happens is when you, th when you don't have to think and, and go through each individual step and just follow the recipe, pretty soon what began as an event where you had to process it now becomes so automatic you don't even think about it. Now, when it comes to giving daily bread, that can happen between you and God. That if you don't have dependency, you begin to think that well, you don't even think about the provider because it always happens. There's this really uh, good analogy that goes like this. There's a fellow who's living in a house. It's you own the house, and you uh, begin uh, uh, to uh, help that renter out by paying for some of their utilities. And you pay for their utilities for almost a year, but at the end of that year, you decide to stop because you can't afford it anymore. And that renter says, You've treated me wrong. You go, how did I treat you wrong? You quit paying for my utilities. You see, he became so used to that that when it was taken away, it was viewed as a victimization as opposed to the privilege that they were receiving. Now, when he says, give us this, daily, give us this day our daily bread, what God is doing is he's removing this sort of expectation or, how should I say, forgetfulness of God's provision because you're getting it all the time without even thinking, right? 
So the regularity of it all, the, the whole point here is that he says, I want you to come every day. You come every day. Don't just say, well, God will, God, God, God's, you know, lose track and, and you forget that God takes time to provide that bread every day. It, it creates that sense of accountability. And perhaps the best way I can explain it, because I don't think I'm doing a good job of it, is what Brother Dixon said in the first meeting this morning. And it's in Exodus chapter 16. Let's turn there. In Exodus chapter 16, we have the daily manna thing. All right? Now, I won't read it all because Brother David read it earlier this morning. But let's just see if we can capture this daily aspect, okay? Verse 4, Exodus 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. Now, when they decided to gather twice as much on any other day except for the day before the Sabbath, what would happen to the little coriander seed? It would turn to worms. Right? And so you can read that, skip ahead. Um, verse 10, And Moses said, Let him leave a none of it till morning. So they gathered enough for, the, for two days in a row. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And I have a little story. It's, uh, I, I, I can't tell you where it happened, but it really did happen. At that time in, in this uh, organization's life, they were getting food surpluses from the government. So it was a while ago, and we were getting Fruit Loops. I don't know why. It wasn't very healthy. And so one day, I opened a box of Fruit Loops, and I poured it in my bowl, and I put milk in it, and I noticed that the Fruit Loops were moving. And there's little worms in there. I didn't eat Fruit Loops for like 10 years. Okay. Can you imagine if you, you had your little bowl of manna, you know? Put that little goat's milk on there and get the big old spoonful. Ah, it's moving, Mom, it's moving, right? And it began to have a bad odor to it. Right? Now, why did God put that stipulation in there? Because he wanted the people to go every day and get what they needed for that day. What is he saying by this? He is saying, I need you to have daily dependence upon me. The regularity of this idea is what you need. You need it as an individual because if it's not done every day and it's just sort of, quote, automatic where you don't even think about it, what happens is you take God for granted. And there are many Christians who are taking God for granted today. Are you one of those? It's not a healthy attitude. In fact, it's terrible for your spiritual health. Now, we have four minutes out of our 80 left. And I want you to look at the last point. So we had personal dependency, personal reliability. We had this idea of regularity. Now we have just a few thoughts on some corollary passages. Now, the first one I want you to turn to is Colossians chapter 4 and verse 22. Corollary means um, an expansion of the idea, a, a different twist so that we can get the full breadth and depth of the concept. Now, when it says, give us this day our daily bread, we're talking about something that has a lot of consistency to it, correct? 
And the Lord God, through the Spirit of God, communicated that idea in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. I said 22, I meant verse 2. And I want you to read it with me. It says, continue earnestly in prayer. Now, the word continuing earnestly or steadfastly is a word that's described a soldier. It's used to describe a soldier who would devoutly wait on his commander to come to, for example, board the vessel while he stood his post at attention, waiting for him to come, constantly, uh, continually steadfast at his post. And this is what he's saying. I want you to think of prayer as something, as a post, like a military operation. And you stay at the task. You, you stay true to the task until I come or until I, I, I've answered your prayer. You stay to it. You have that constancy of your soul. Give us this day our daily bread. It implies this idea. But there's a second corollary that you should understand, and it's in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. It's just a few pages over, and this is even easier to follow. It says this, pray without ceasing. Now, that's been a debate of lots of philosophy, and what does it mean pray without ceasing? Do I pray every time of the day, blah, blah, blah? Listen, it means whenever there's an opportunity to pray, pray. All right, now let me tell you how it works in my life, just to give a concrete example. There are times in my life where I have tremendous conviction that I should pray for individuals. Many of them are in this room. And, and, uh, and, throughout the, and what I want to do at that moment, when the Spirit of God is prompting me to pray, I pray. I think that's pray without ceasing, right? See, I trust the Spirit of God to direct my prayer life. I trust Him to do that. And when He wakes me up at 3 in the morning, and I, 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 I ask Him the question, Oh, Lord... Who is it that you want me to pray for? Let me do that. And I just make it a goal. I'll pray. And when I've prayed for the person that you wanted me to pray for, I'm sure you'll let me go back to sleep. And sometimes I don't go back to sleep. And I have the best day of my life from 3 a.m. You see, I think this is, it's, it's not, it's, it's sort of a paradigm. It's sort of an attitude. It's sort of an expectation. And when you bring that person to pray, I have learned to, uh, I'm listening to the Christian radio, and when the Lord uh, brings a person, I turn it off and I pray out loud. And sometimes I'll have a 45-minute drive to where I'm going, I'll just pray the whole 45 minutes. I didn't plan it, it just happened. Pray without ceasing. Now, the third insight of corollaries comes from Luke. And this is the idea, again, give us this day our daily bread, constancy in prayer, perseverance in prayer. When the Lord brings uh, that which you should pray for, bring, bring along. And I also have moments when I just schedule to pray too, right? But there's this thing about God that he wants you to know. And in, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11. And this will be our final passage. I know that that there are other obligations, so don't fret. It'll just be a few minutes longer. In Luke chapter 11, verse 5, he says, Which of you have a friend and go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come on his, uh, to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer, that is the friend, from within his home home, and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut. The children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give you. I say to you, this is Jesus talking, I say to you, though he will not rise 
excuse me, and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So this is how it is. Friend is over here, friend is over here. Friend here gets a visitor. He says, wow, I'm out of, I don't have anything in the fridge. So he goes over at a bad hour of the day and he talks to his friend. And he says, hey, do you got anything I can share with my visitor? I'm out. And the friend over here says, man, it's late. I got all the kids in bed. The lights are off. Come back later. And yet this friend says, I better get up and get him something because if not, he'll just keep knocking. Now, this is what the Lord, te- the, Lord, the Lord is teaching. He's teaching in contrasting parable form. And what he is, is he's saying, I am nothing like that friend. I will gladly get up. Not because you're bothering me and not because I want to get back to sleep, but I will gladly, I will gladly respond to you. So you come. You be as constant and persistent as you ever want to be because I love it when you do that. Now, he tells a similar parable, which is in chapter 18. Don't turn there. I'll summarize this one for you. And it's about the lady, the widow, who has a problem with somebody in the, in the business relationship of her life. And she takes the problem to the judge. And the judge doesn't care about anybody. He, just, he, he doesn't care whether her case is right or wrong. But he says to himself, I better do something about this widow because she's driving me crazy. It's a loose translation in the ESV. If you read it, it's really there. And so what happens is he decides her case in her favor. And what is the Lord Jesus teaching you? He's teaching you in the contrasting parabolic form. He's saying, I am nothing like that judge. I will actually do the right thing, not because I don't want to be bothered, but because I so want you to bother me. So you don't stop. You keep knocking on his door. It's in this Matthew 5, 6, and 7 passage where he ends his dissertation in this way. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Seek. What is he saying to you as a father? Don't stop. Don't get discouraged. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh, I'm so good for it. And, and if you have to come many times, don't you think I didn't hear every knock? I'm, I'm honing your heart. I'm heightening your heart to really pursue me. Because in the end of the day, when you and I meet and that desire is fulfilled, you will be as close to me as you possibly can and I will be as close to you as I possibly can. And I love that moment, my child. I love that moment. And I want that with you. Father, there have been times in which you have created the moment of this judge or friend scenario, and I failed. I failed to seek you. And you were patient, you taught me, and you reminded me again, and again, and again. And I'm so grateful for that. Because when finally, Father, we met together and you answered the prayer of the need of the hour in just your perfect way, I knew you are my Father. I thank you for that, Father. And I pray that you would help the Claremont Bible Chapel and the saints in this room understand 
how invaluable prayer is to you and for us. In Jesus' name.